That's our series this summer, Unconventional Wisdom, Insight Through Hindsight. If, uh, if Jesus is the answer, what was the question? Well, Ecclesiastes is the question. How do you find the good life? And so what we've been looking at is, is the ways that our faith is not an escape, it's not a denial, it's a, it's a way, it's a resource to face reality. So we talked about facing reality. We've talked about facing fear, facing unfairness. This morning, facing loss, facing loss. Think of Solomon like Magellan. You know Magellan from the 1500s? He's the first man to circumnavigate the globe. You know, he, he'd go off to foreign lands, sail the seven seas, come back with artifacts and stories, telling Portugal what is out there and, uh, and, and bringing a world of perspective to life. That's Solomon. He's looking, he's examining a world of choices, of opportunities, of interests, and he's coming back and he's saying, here's what's worth loving, what's worth pursuing, what's worth investing in. This morning, we're going to look at the ways that Solomon is showing us how distracted we are, how, how cluttered our lives become such that we cannot find contentment and that how important it is to face loss, to face your mortality, that you may appreciate your life and prioritize your life the way we're called to. To, be, to live content is to declutter, and to declutter means to recognize that, that our days are fleeting, Moses in Psalm 90 says, Lord, teach me to number my days that I may, I may gain a heart of wisdom. Jesus, facing death, telling his disciples that he was going to die. Peter tried to drag him back to the clutter. Denying death denying what Jesus needed to do. And Jesus' strongest rebuke in all of the, the New Testament, get behind me, Satan. Paul, to the Galatian church, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Facing loss leads to the abundant life. How? Let's take a look. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 through 7 and verses 14. Verse 14. Hear God's word this morning. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face 
the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. May God bless us through this, his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, bless this word not only to our minds to understand, but to our hearts to receive that through our lives, we may live more abundantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there's a running joke in my, my family of origin that my surgeon father would, would uh, when, when I'd go to him with an ache or a pain or a concern, you know, turning towards him, you know this about the cobbler's sons have no shoes. You know, you go to a surgeon father, what do you get when you, when you complain about some physical ailment? He would diagnose us in Latin, right? You know, leaving me, you know, questioning, you know, my, my life expectancy, you know? Ooh, oh, Tim, that sounds like a, that sounds like a Morton's neuroma. Now, this, is, this actually happened. That sounds like a Morton's neuroma. And I'm thinking, is it fatal? You know, I mean, how much longer do I have to live? You know, but actually, you know, that, it, it's not all bad that, we need, when we're teenagers especially, to be reminded that we are not invincible. That's, you, you, this is why you have to tell teenagers to put on their seatbelt. They think they're invincible. But Americans do too, don't we? We hold on to that. I've told you before that I think in, in America, when somebody dies, we give the family about two weeks to grieve. And then we expect by the way we treat them, talk to them, act standoffish or just ignore what, what happened. We expect them just to move on with life. This is why I tell people, you know, I tell people this, that, that when someone is lost, when they, they face a loss, that they're going to live their first year without this person all year long. There's something important about going through the full seasons all the way around the sun, knowing and feeling and sensing that loss, not, not so that it doesn't linger, so that it, it doesn't linger days and days, so, it, so, that, so that grief doesn't just get put on the back burner on a, a low simmer. David Allen's written a book called uh, How, Getting Things Done, and, uh, and in it, he talks about open loops, and I think our mortality is one of those open loops. What, what do I mean by open loops? What does he mean? It, it's kind of like if you leave the house and you think you're to yourself, you're halfway to work and you think to yourself, did I leave the iron on? Or, or you're lying there in bed, did I lock the back door? It's an open loop. And throughout the day, 
you know, it draws down, it draws energy, it, it, it distracts you, it clutters your mind. An open loop, right? I think Solomon is pointing out an open loop. We, we don't like to talk about loss. We don't like to talk about death. And so it sits on the back burner, just simmering. I really think this is a big issue for Americans. I think this is the source of a lot of anxiety, that we have so distanced ourselves from loss and the possibility of it and death. It's almost like when you talk to somebody, when something happens, it's always a shock. It's always... Awful. Yes, that's true, but it's almost like it's not even the realm of possibilities that this could actually happen because we've held on to this sense of invincibility. We haven't really... Fa- you know, and, and, and what Solomon is getting at here is that our faith is not a resource for deflection or for denial, but facing reality. It's a resource to, to look life fully in the face. And to deal with reality, not to deflect it, not to deny it, but to deal with it. This is why people who have near-death experiences, when you talk to them, there's a sense that they would never have traded it. They would never trade that experience. It was, it was awful to go through, but there is a decluttering of their mind in their lives. There's a greater sense of focus, a sense of priority, a new lease, a new freedom to go for it. A sense of dying to the right things. Dying before you die. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. How do you die before you die? How do you die before you die? How do you die to the right things? You got to die to the right things. You got to die to your reputation. You got to die to the urgent. And you got to die to control. That's where we're going. To the the urgent, to to your reputation, to the urgent, to control. Let's take a look. First, you got to die to your reputation. So that what? If you want to declutter and you want to live with contentment, turn from clutter to contentment, you have to die your reputation so that you may live to your character. Die to your reputation that you may live unto character. Look at verse 1. A good name is better than fine ointment, expensive ointment, perfume. Remember when John Wood was here, he talked about how expensive, how precious perfume was in that day and age. It, it represented, it was a symbol of, of wealth. It was a symbol of somebody who had, who had invested their life in such a way that they accumulated good things. I want to talk to you just a minute about this contrast between a good name and perfume. Let's think about it this way. They're, they're the PR people. They're the PR people, and then they're the unpacked people. Who are the PR people? The PR people are always on the lookout. They're always, they're always projecting what they want you to see, what they want you to think about them. What they're saying is always in order to paint a certain kind of picture. They always want to smell good. You know, there, there's some people around you in your life that they just always smell just a little too good, Right? Sort of like that masking, like you might dial down that perfume just a little bit. You might just put a little, just a couple of dabs instead of like bathing in it. You know, it's like 
there's, there's something that's being hidden here because you just smell a little too good. You know, it makes me think of this, this little story about a, a woman who, uh, th- these women didn't trust her because she just always looked so good. Everything was always put together. But then she invited them over and, and, and they said, they said uh, oh my goodness, you know, everything is just so, everything is perfect in here. I mean, it's like walking into Tiffany's or something. And she said, oh, no, 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 come, let me show you my, my secret closet. And she opens this closet and everything is just sounding crazy in there. She said, whenever I have people come over, I just throw everything in there. It's like trust went way, way up after that. It's like, you're a real person. You're not pretending. And you let us in. Those are the unpacked people. The PR people, they just smell a little too good. But the unpacked people, you know, instead of carrying around a a suitcase of unknowns, they know what they're, they're, they're packing. They know what they're carrying around. They've unpacked it. And they're not afraid of what's in there. Uh, it, this past week, I sat down with a pastor. We, we were at the General Assembly, as uh, Tyler mentioned, and uh, I sat down with a pastor. And this is an unpacked person, not a PR person. I spent about an hour and a half talking with him. It was just a delight to get to know him. Why? Because he, he was somebody who was open, uh, vulnerable, not afraid. This is somebody who had unpacked, who, had, who was doing the work, who was dealing with himself, who was dealing with his past and not afraid to let me in and, and to, to tell me a little bit about what he was dealing with and how difficult things were for him in that time. And trust grew with vulnerability. But there was such confidence that lay behind him, underneath him. There was such a sense of, of goodness within his life, within his mess. You know, so... So it's a little bit like Mike Rowe is what I'm thinking about. That Mike Rowe who's willing to get in the mess because he knows that the mess doesn't define him. And Jesus was the ultimate Mike Rowe. You know what I'm talking about, Mike Rowe, the dirty jobs guy? The guy who's always jumping into some kind of sewage or something like that. Or, you know, he's, he's always uh, got his arm somewhere it really shouldn't be. You know, I'm just somewhere awful, right? <laughs> Mike Rowe. I mean, is Jesus not the ultimate Mike Rowe, the dirty jobs guy. I mean, the ultimate person to get down in the mess with you. You know those people. Those are the people you really trust because they they don't pretend they don't have messes. And they're dealing with their messes intentionally. They're doing the work. They're living an abundant life because they're not letting... Their messes define them. They're able and free and open and accessible. And those are the people you want to go to when you're in a mess because they're so willing to, I mean, this is what I tell people, when you become a pastor, you sign up for the mess. When you become a pastor, you sign up for the mess. I know y'all look good this morning and you come in and many of you, um, you know, you, you, you got ready, you know, it's, you, you all... You look really nice. But when I look out there, I see beautiful people, but I also see, I see stories. Sometimes people feel very intimidated going to church. Maybe if you haven't been to church in a while, or maybe you're, you're not sure about being here this morning, you know, and you see people all buttoned up, I, I think you should recognize that, that we're a mess and uh, <laughs> you fit right in. 
You can go through life and project. This is what Solomon is saying. Better, better a good name. Why is he, you know, in, he, in, in these wisdom literature books, there are parallels. Look back at this. It says, good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death, better than the day of birth, better to go in the house of mourning. He's building on this parallel. He's talking about it's better to go to a funeral than a, than a wedding. What's he talking about? What's he saying? How is a good name compared to perfume like going to a funeral rather than a wedding? What's he saying? Well, at the funeral, you really know what the real deal is. There's no more masking. You really know if the grief is for real. And you can look back on somebody's life and you can see. So he's saying, pay attention at funerals. You want to live a good life? See who's really grieved and why. At funerals, you know, maybe, maybe in the obituary you have all kinds of of achievements listed, but that's not what really people care about at funerals. That's not what people are talking about. That's not what they miss. That's not what they, that's not what they celebrate. That's not what they look back on and cherish. They look back on someone who was able to connect with them, who didn't judge them, who was real, who lived in such a way that their messes didn't define them. They lived with great abundance and they celebrated you and were able to enter into your moment, even your messes, because they had unpacked. They weren't a PR person. They had unpacked. You got to die before you die. And the first way is die to your reputation so you can live unto character. Second, second, you got to die to the urgent so you can live to the important. You've heard this before. You've heard this from me. I've told you about my little red book that somebody gave me in college. It said, The Tyranny of the Urgent, right? The difference between somebody else deciding for you what matters that day and you deciding for yourself what your priorities are. Here in the, in the scripture, in, in verse 6, it talks about this, this strange but hilarious image. It's an amazing image of the crackling of thorns under a pot. What's he talking about? Can you picture that? Right? I mean, when you get kindling and it's really dry and really willowy, maybe even hollow, that's, those are thorns, dry thorns under a pot. When you light those, they go right up. They just, they're gone. What's, he, what's this image representing? Somebody who's always having to have the party, who's always having to, be out in the open, who's always having to be relevant, up on everything, an opinion about everything, somebody who's always having the good time, who's always in the mix, who's the li- always in the life of the party, right in the middle of everything all the time. My, my grandfather used to say, fools' names, like their faces, always seen in public places. Fools' names, like graffiti, like their faces, always seen in public places. This is what Solomon is saying. He's saying people who are investing in the fleeting trivialities of life, they're letting everybody else's urgency decide for them what their priorities are. You know, there's a difference between aspired values and the ones you actually live. The aspired values are what you really think you, you care about and what you, what you think you aspire to, the, the things that are your great priorities, the things that are important But your real values, you know where they show up? They show up in your calendar and your checkbook. 
Those are your real values, your lived values. You may say, I value these, this set of things. I, I value these three priorities. But you look at your calendar and your checkbook and see, do these show up there? The tyranny of the urgent can block out the important because we're always, we're, we're, it's the fear of missing out, FOMO, the fear of missing out. I always have to be crackling about something, Right? Always have to be crackling. You know, summertime is here, and it's been here. Are you bored yet? Young people, are you bored yet? I hope you're bored. Summertime is a time to be bored. You know that? When I used to go to my, when I was, when I was young, and I'd go to my mom and say, Mom, I'm bored. She'd say, well, not my problem. <laughs> it's not my problem. You know, figure it out. And you know what? It was so important to get bored in the summertime. Not to be crackling about something all the time, but to say, man, this is uncomfortable. I don't know, what am I supposed to do with myself? And then all of a sudden, a piece of rope, you know, and a stick, and you're off and running. You're like, I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know I could catch a crawdad with my own hands, right? That, we used to have this little canoe, and... Um, I mean, we did, we got crazy creative with this canoe. I mean, one time I, I stood on the gunnels of the canoe and I just sort of saw, I, I, I tried to see how high I could bounce my dog, like right in the front of the canoe. Like, how high could I get the dog? All four paws in the air, right? I mean, you do crazy and stupid stuff, but then you get creative, right? Then you get creative and you build forts out of sticks, you know? Suddenly, you know, a you, you fold a piece of paper and it turns into a paper football and you have a great time uh, flicking that thing across the table. Summertime's a time to be bored. Here's, here's, here's what I'm getting at. Here's how it connects back with this whole crackling, always having to be in the mix of the relevant and the new and the true and what's happening. Chesterton. I love G.K. Chester, and he says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. What's he talking about? He says this. They always say, do it again, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he's nearly dead. For, for grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately. But has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite for infancy. For we have sinned, listen to this, we have sinned and grown old and our father is younger than we are. Summer's a time to be bored. A time to get in touch again, perhaps with your aspired values. That you're not always chasing the urgent that the important can emerge again, that those things that you loved and cherished and valued and cared for and aspired to when you were young and fierce and free can emerge again. 
And you can reprioritize your life by dying to the urgent. I heard somebody say this past week, he said, uh, you know, when you're, when, you're, when you're young and dumb, you know, you're just constantly responding to everybody else's urgent whim. Hey, you want to go? Yeah, you say, yeah, where are we going? <laughs> right? You don't even know where you're going. And then when you get older, you, you want to know, okay, wh- where are we going? How late is it open? Is it going to be loud? I think I'll drive separately, right? <laughs> Don't let other people's agenda and urgency decide for you what is important. You're going to die. <laughs> it feels like a death. You've got to give some things up in order to get bored again that the important may emerge and you can aspire to the things that you really value all the way into your checkbook and all the way into your calendar. That's what it means to die to the urgent that you may live unto the important. And finally, you got to die to control. Die to control that you can live into trust. Die to control that you may live into trust because uncertainty is certain. Uncertainty is certain. You got to die to control and live into trust. Look at really verses 13 and 14. I'll read 14 again. In the day of prosperity, in the day of prosperity, when things are going well, be joyful. Now listen to this. In the day of adversity, consider. I love that. You know, the way the ESV puts it, it, it puts a colon after it. Consider. Just Pause there for a minute. In the day of adversity, consider. Consider what? God has made the one as well as the other. Joyful times, uncertain times. He's made them both. A lot of times we get into uncertainty and we think, well, something, I must have steered in the wrong direction. Something went wrong. Look back at verse 13. It says this, consider the work of God. Who can make straight? What he has made crooked. Well, sometimes you need to go on a crooked path in order to, for him to make your way straight. Have you ever considered that? Sometimes you need to go on a crooked path in order for him to make your way straight. He needs to take you around a bend, an uncertain bend in the road. Can you dwell there in that place of uncertainty, in trust, or do you have to control it? Do you have to put all your energy into saying, I'm going to make this path straight myself. I've got to get this, I've got to get this back under my control. Or can you dwell there in a place of urgency, of, of, of adversity, and do what? Consider. Consider that God is sovereign. I carry, sometimes I carry around this little pocket piece. I love it. It says, thy will be done. I'll just carry it around. Sometimes I'll just put my hand in there and, and remember God is sovereign. Thy will be done. How are you doing living in that place? In adversity. How are you doing praying with your life? Thy will be done. You know, um, Beth and I relearned this a couple of years ago when she got sick. 
we were driving down the road and we just kind of thought, we said to one another, you know, it turns out life is full of uncertainty. It just turns out this, is, and if you don't live into your uncertain days, you're going to miss a lot of them. If you don't embrace life in the midst of uncertainty, how are you going to learn to trust in the sovereignty of God? Maybe that's exactly the path he has you on so you can learn to trust outside of your control. There's a great book by Mitch Album called Tuesdays with Maury where he spends time with his, one of his mentors, one of his professors, just asking him questions about life. Maury has a, some sort of problem with his lungs. He's, he's dying and he's imparting his pearls of wisdom. He says, the young are not wise. They have very little understanding about life. Who wants to live every day when you don't know what's going on, when people are manipulating you, telling you to buy this perfume? Or Interesting how that connects. And how beautiful you can be. And you believe them at such nonsense. Weren't you ever afraid to grow old? I asked. This is Mitch asking him. Mitch? I embrace aging. Embrace it. Yeah, it's very simple. As you grow old, you learn more. If you stayed at 22, you'd always be ignorant as if you were 22. Aging is not just decay, you know, it's growth. It's more than negative that you're going to die. It's also the positive that you understand you're going to die and that you live better because of it. Yes, I said, but why do people say, oh, if I were only young again? You never hear, hear people say, I sure wish I were old. He smiled. You know what that reflects? Discontentment, unsatisfied lives, unfulfilled lives, lives that haven't found meaning because if you've found meaning in your life, you don't want to go back. You want to go forward. That's so true. I mean, maybe you want to go back with the wisdom that you have now, but you can't do that. How are you going to live the abundant life? Well, what Solomon is saying is, you got to die before you die. You got to die to your reputation. Stop projecting all the time so you can live into character. You got to die to the urgent. Don't let everybody else understand, uh, uh, decide for you what, what you need to understand for yourself, what is important. You got to die to control that you can live and to trust. This is why Richard Niebuhr said this. He prayed this, a famous prayer. Lord, give me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, to change the things I can change, and the wisdom to know the difference. Let's pray together. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the, the wonderful way, the marvelous way you lived daily among us. The beautiful way that Jesus in your simplicity, <laughs> saying, it is finished. What contentment you demonstrated to us and what contentment you enable and power because of the cross. Dying before we die, Lord, help us. Help us with that. May we be crucified with Christ that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. 
In Jesus' name, amen.